I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. What's poppin' Celtics fans? Happy Friday. I hope everybody's starting the day well. If you're on your way to work, then I hope it's a good day. If you're chilling on a day off, then, you know, I'm jealous about that. I'm not jealous if you're going to work, though. I'm not going to lie. I done a solo podcast on Monday. I was just saying off there. Recording those are tough. So if, if listening to them's tough, I completely understand. I'm joined by the usual Friday co-host, Mr. Will Weir, who's apparently an international man of mystery because he's always somewhere. What's going on, Will? Yo, what's going on, Mr. Taylor? How you doing, man? I'm living, dude. I'm living. I'm adjusting to this full-time freelance life. I'm getting used to it. Today was a quiet day for me. So I uh, sat down, watched a bit of Ride Along 2, chilled out, played Ooh, okay. a little bit of Need for Speed. And then I was like, right, I should get to do some work now. That's the first time I've been able to do that in like two weeks. Like just be able to be like, I'm not doing anything this morning. So I'm doing well, man. How about you? I'm doing good, man. Like you said, I don't know if I'm quite an international man of mystery, but you know, over here, just just came back from a from a little vacation, and which I, I I think you might need a little vacation at some point, Adam. But appreciate, hope everybody out there appreciates your grind and hustle that you're putting out there, because it's it's honestly it's truly admirable. But you know, I just got back from little little vacation in Lake Tahoe, took a weekend off, met up with some some close friends that I haven't seen in in a couple of years here, really two little over two years now with this whole pandemic so you know it's really good when you get a chance to reset the battery see some people that you really care about and gives you a little bit of perspective and, and gives you a fresh take to come back here and you know start spitting it back and forth with you with your friends from dorchester by any chance they're not so it's uh me and then obviously greg who uh listeners obviously know from from monday and then from our show as well but uh it's uh, two of our other friends they're from boston but they're not from dorchester one is from the south end and the other's from jamaica plain and we've been uh we've all been best friends since high school so that's you know coming up now dang it's like just about 15 16 years the four of us have been have been best friends and so usually once a year we all take a trip together try and stay connected Greg and I live in Austin. One of the guys lives in Boston. Another one's out in San Francisco. So it's become one of those like uh, brotherhood type trips that we take once a year. Like the American Pie, this is the legendary we meet up <laughs> once a year type thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny you say that, man, because I think it's American Pie 2 where they rent like a, a yes, beach sir. house or a lake house. Yes, yeah, that's honestly, I had that same feeling in my mind this past weekend. You know, made me think of that kind of American Pie, American Pie 2 setting where you got the four guys living in the lake house. So definitely a little bit of that vibe going on. <laughs> the reason I asked about Dorchester was talking about movies and stuff we just hit on American Pie and we will get to basketball but you know um I watched Black Mass for the first time yeah uh, the Tuesday. Whitey Bulger story mm-hmm. yeah dude I never heard of this guy before didn't know anything about him um and that's all around like Dorchester and South Boston dude like um I, I like I've seen the town so mm-hmm. like, obviously I I know what's going on with the town side of things but yo that film was dope man he was a he was not a very nice man at all yeah, Whitey Bulger is a crazy story, man. Just like the legend of him. And it's funny, just talking about Lake Tahoe, you know, you fly into San Francisco and then we drove there. So in San Francisco is where Alcatraz is located. And at one point, that's where Whitey Bulger was. And he actually did, he was part of these experiments that they were doing with the prisoners. 
And, you know, you see some of his reactions and I believe it was Johnny Depp who played him in the, in the movie. And you can see some of his like, and just like has this like weird, you know, addictive edge to him that you can feel kind of coming through the screen. And that's all supposed to be tied back experiments that, that were done on him while he was in Alcatraz. But yeah, man, I grew up my whole life knew, knowing about Whitey Bulger. He was number one on the FBI's most wanted list for most of my life, fell to number two after 9-11. I mean, it took Osama bin Laden to move him out of that number one spot on the FBI's most wanted list. And then when he was captured in Santa Monica several years ago, it was actually at a, it was in this like condominium building in Santa Monica. And a few years prior to that, my cousin lives out that way. And I was visiting her and we were, I think there's a park or there's something of, uh, something of importance in that area that we were around that area. And I knew that building looked familiar. And my cousin lived around the corner from where Whitey Bulger and I think it might've been his mistress or or his second wife, whatever it was, that was on the run with him for all the years was actually captured. But yeah, man, Black Mass and the story of Whitey Bulger, it's fascinating. You talk to anybody that's from Boston, specifically in that Dorchester, Southie area, they either know a story or have some type of connection to their family or whatever it might be of Whitey Bulger. And so it's, it's one of those pieces that growing up, I assumed more people knew about because it was so relevant to where I grew up. Uh, but come to find out as an adult, most people don't know that story. And so it's really interesting to see them start to get exposed to it. And, you know, you mentioned Black Mass and then also The Departed, the Jack Nicholson character. That's supposed to be a Whitey Bulger type character. It's based around him and his gang within that. It's obviously fictionalized, but that's kind of the um, uh, the basis of it. It's crazy, dude. Like, I try and like submerse myself in as much boston kind of folklore as possible just because i feel like it gives me more more um material to kind of draw on when i'm talking about the team or when i'm writing about the team or you know just so when i am at boston way i have things i can talk about outside of basketball that are actually prevalent to the to the area that i'm in um so I saw Black Mass. I saw it, and you know the Facebook like video things where it's kind of like it was like TikTok before TikTok came around, like long form yeah. video. So I was watching it there, and they always suggest um, like movies to me. So I like, and to be honest, I find most of my new movies through that feed. And uh, Black Mass was on there. I was like, "Yeah, Johnny Depp plays a gangster. Let me go check this out." <laughs> uh, it was good, man. It was good. I'm not gonna lie. Anyway, talking of gangsters, Ooh, not, what maybe. a pivot! What a pivot! Not really gangsters, but talking about holding someone to ransom and then absolutely losing your entire, how can we put this? Talk about holding someone to ransom and losing everything you had as leverage. And by that, we mean Dennis Schroeder (laughs) turning down an $88 million deal by the Los Angeles Lakers to end up on a $5.9 million taxpayer MLE deal with the Boston Celtics. I was not. Very pleased with the signing of Dennis Schroeder. Schroeder? Schroeder. Uh, I don't know how we're going to do this. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think between the two of us, we're going to say it about three to four different ways throughout the podcast. So you might just have to get used to it. Yeah, and that's fine. But like, okay, first of all, how do you feel about the signing? Let's go from there. Yeah, so I mean, so right now within the context of when the signing happened, I love it. I love it in the sense that Dennis Schroeder, Schroeder is is better than a $5.9 million player. He certainly overplayed his hand turning down the four years, $88 million that the Los Angeles Lakers offered him, which I think is an overpay. That puts him in that Malcolm Brogdon, Fred Van Bleet category, and I don't, I don't think he's that type of player. 
Now, I think Schroeder can play. I think he's gotten, you know, too much of a reputation that he's not a valuable piece. I think he can be a high-level role player, but that's what he is, a high-level role player. So for where the Celtics are at with free agency, with what's left on the board, and just looking to up the overall talent level that this team has, and I think at this point in free agency, that's the best you're going to do. Is he an ideal fit? No, I don't think he's the the best fit for the team. But is he going to raise your talent level? Are you getting him on a risk-free one-year contract at much less than what his value is? Probably about a third of what his true value is in a in a realistic contract. Then I think it's absolutely a home run in that sense, and I think it gives the Celtics from a roster construction standpoint a little bit more variability game to game. I mean, if you look at Dennis Schroeder just historically, from his fourth season on, he's averaged, you know, over 15 points every season, been that 15 to 20 point per game mark. So I think he adds a much needed scoring component to this team. Like I said, he's not a perfect fit, but I think for the timing of his signing and the landscape of free agency as it exists with, with what's remaining on the market, this is a home run by Brad Stevens in my mind. Tell me a little bit more about uh, about the other sides. I know I know you don't love the signing, Adam. I remember putting in a group chat on Steving, and nobody <laughs> agreed with me. Nobody agreed with me, and that's fine. Like every, like I, I feel like I'm one of the only people on the Dennis Schroeder was a bit of a bad signing kind of island. For, yeah, let's uh, talk it through. Yeah. So first of all, my biggest concern was you. You want to give minutes to Peyton Pritchard. You want to develop Romeo Langford as a ball handler. Now I understand you're trying to win. So placing that much trust in rookies and sophomores and a third-year guy that's been injured for two years, hasn't even shown much at Summer League, having the faith in those guys is a lot of trust to place somewhere and it could be misplaced trust. So I completely understand going after Dennis Schroeder from that standpoint. More veteran um, know-how within the, within the roster. He gives you another point of attack defender. That seems to be one of his best talents in general is just his perimeter defense. But then I was like, right, He's a score-first point guard. I don't care what the assists say when you look at basketball reference. I get it. He's roughly a five-assist-a-night guy over his career. I care more about how many assists... Like, What is the difference between how much the ball is in your hands and how often you distribute that for an assist? And there's a metric that that, um, that measures that called assist-to-usage ratio. So the first thing I did was I went along to cleaning the glass and had to look at assist-to-usage ratio. When I look at it, he has never been above the 44th percentile in assist-to-usage ratio. Most of his career, he's been lower lower third. So 30th percentile, 30th percentile, maybe 32nd, 33rd percentile. But he's one of the worst guards for the amount of time the ball is in his hands to the amount of time he actually makes an assist. He's really low. He's definitely not a, a, like a, a pass mentality point guard. He's definitely looking for his own shot. That's fine. If you're scoring consistently then I am completely fine with you being a score-first point guard. But Schroeder doesn't score consistently. He's a high-volume shooter, well, um, scorer. He needs multiple reps to score. So I went ahead and looked at, you know, how what is his frequency right then? His mm-hmm. frequency last year was 35% of his shot profile came at the rim. 40% of his shot profile came mid-range, with 24 at the short mid, which is your floater region, 16 at your long mid, which is the superstar or frowned-upon region. And then 25% of his shot profile came at free. But now I looked at, okay, so now we know his profile. How, how consistent is he making them? 45th percentile at the rim, barely converting over one, over half of his attempts. That's his bread and butter shot as well. He pressures the rim the most. 
mid-range 42%, all threes 34%. So he's not an elite scorer by any means anywhere, but he also doesn't distribute the ball enough for how often it's in his hand. So I, I just fail to see why he, bringing him in makes this team better from a fit standpoint because he isn't what the team needed. We spent so long talking about you need a playmaker, a guy that can like come in and marshal the offense and be be this quarterback type guy. And then I know people were like, well, pass first point guard means can't shoot. But yeah. that's fine. But now you've brought in a score first point guard that can't shoot. So so where's the <laughs> where's the middle ground? And that was my biggest kind of like, yeah, I don't like this signing very much. And obviously there's more we can go into in a moment. Yeah, no, I mean, I think those are all extremely valid points. And that's why, you know, before I even got into why I'm a fan of the signing, I started with, it's not a perfect fit. I don't think if you were, I mean, you're right. We've gone into this plenty in the offseason of the point guards that we thought would be a great fit. You spent probably too much time writing up about some of those point guard fits that ultimately ended up not making it onto the team or being traded to to other areas. But, you know, at the same time, I, I don't think he's the most efficient player. But you even talked about the way that he attacks the rim and his percentage. And the percentage wasn't great, wasn't ideal. But one of the things that we have been looking for is somebody that gets in the lane. Somebody that gets in the lane and can draw the defense from other away from the Jays or away from other aspects of this team. And so I think Schroeder will do that. I think he will have a role to play in which you can try to balance the floor in the sense of, of scoring distribution ask him to take on a little bit more role when you have one of the Jays on the bench. Because when you look at the rest of this team from a scoring standpoint, you know, Al's never been a big time scorer. Al lives in about that 12 to 15 point range. Josh Richardson had one year in which he, you know, went over that 15 point mark, but mostly I'm not really going to expect him to be that 15 point per game guy. Marcus, we all know where he lives. Peyton Pritchard, you know, he's going to be a backup guy who's used to space the floor. He'll handle the ball a little bit, but he's not going to be a double-digit scorer per game, most likely. Aaron Neesmith, that's kind of a wild card. We'll see where, where he develops. So I, I think with Schroeder, he'll really hold down that second spot as the second leading scorer when one of the Jays is off the floor. And you're going to need somebody that just puts a little bit of pressure on the defense when you don't have your best weapons out there. Now, at this point in free agency, which is the biggest reason for me that I look at this as a win, at this point, there's nobody out there that's more talented than Dennis Schroeder. There might be some that you can argue are slightly better fits, but I think the more talent that you can bring in, you're going to raise that level of, you know, we talked about this during the playoffs. The Atlanta Hawks weren't the best team, but they had a great talent depth beyond Trey Young. They just had a lot of talent that could that could raise them to the next level if things broke the right way. They caught a couple of breaks. They ended up in the Eastern Conference Finals. Now, from the Celtics, you look at that where you have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, and then you look at the talent below that. You know, you hit on it when it comes to Romeo, comes to Neesmith, comes to any of these younger guys on the back end of the bench. They all have a lot of promise, but we don't know where they're going to be or where their talent's going to be this season. So you're trying to give yourselves as many opportunities that if you get the right breaks, you have more talent depth. And that's really what I think Dennis Schroeder gives you here is just more talent depth. And based on, you know, what what else could you do with what's left with, you know, the, the way the roster is set up? You could go look at Avery Bradley again. He's not going to be the ideal fit either. You know, you can go look at a few of the other guards that are out there. There's not really any that are are the ideal fit. So I think Brad went with talent at a discount. 
and I'm okay with it. I, I think I think it will be an interesting match to see how Ime goes ahead and, and plays and how he staggers us. And this might take us into that you know uh, depth chart conversation. But I think it'll be really interesting to see how he uh, mixes and matches with the different players throughout different rotations in a game. Yeah, I mean, look, five point nine million for a guy that was a borderline six man of the year two seasons ago. I completely get the the, the train of thought. It makes sense. You you go with the best talent available when there isn't the best fit available. My when I was like dead set against this move was when I thought it was going to need to be a full MLE type of deal, and you're hard capping yourself. And I'll put a tweet out, which uh, obviously I kind of meant it a little bit more rhetorical than the way it got talk. <laughs> But that's just social media in general. And it was just like, hey, if you're going to hard cap yourself for Schroeder, why wasn't you in the mix to hard cap yourself for Lanza or for Carl Lowry or for a point guard none of us knew you were interested in or was available? Yeah. Uh, when it's the taxpayer, Emily, you know, it is what it is at that point. Do you know what I mean? Like you're getting a guy that is completely and utterly talent wise a huge discount and he's going to come in with. A point to prove. Now, this is where my other concern comes in, and then we're gonna we can move on to the depth chart. When you come in with a point to prove, it's gonna go one of two ways. You're either going to buy into the philosophy and play your role to the best of your ability, completely excel, and just crush it, and really focus on rebuilding that value the right way. And the Celtics then reap a huge reward because now they've got this elite level role player, one of the best role playing guards in the league. When when Schroeder is at that level. But mm-hmm. the flip side of that is, this is a point guard that's known to look for his own. He he's known to look for his own shot. He he's always been uh, a me numbers first guy, not a you numbers first guy. So if he comes in with a point to prove and he doesn't take route one, and he goes this option where it's all about I need to get my numbers up, I need my digits, so when I can go back into negotiations, I'm I'm averaging eighteen and eight. Well, if that's a 18 and 8, but you're turning the ball over. I mean, for his career, it's roughly a 12% turnover rate. Now, if you're turning the ball over closer to 16, 17% because you're forcing things, where's the value in that? Them eight assists are negated by the, the 18 turnovers per 100 possession. So it could go south for the Celtics as well. And that's just where my head's at at the moment is like, he's not the best fit. And he's coming in with a point to prove that could either be what makes this year for Boston or what breaks this year for Boston from a chemistry standpoint. Yeah, so two quick things on that. Number one, something to keep in mind, and I don't know their relationship, but usually in an NBA player's career, when they're young and they kind of latch on to different veterans, remember, he spent quite a bit of time with Al Horford in Atlanta in his early formative years. So looking to Al Horford with that you know veteran leadership, there is a connection there as far as, you know, the the mentality or the personality fit. So I do think that's something that, that, that could help the point that you're making here. The second point is I feel like part of Dennis Schroeder's gamble that didn't pay off with when he was in LA and turning down that four-year 88 million is that he was banking on being on a winning team that goes deep into the playoffs. And we all know those guys that are playing high-volume minutes, the role, role players especially, that are playing high-volume minutes on teams that go deep into the playoffs – those tend to be the guys that get overpaid that next offseason. So, of course, when you look around, you think you're playing next to LeBron James and Anthony Davis, not accounting for the injuries they had late in the season. 
you expect to be at a minimum conference finals, finals, and likely he would have ended up being probably the third highest scorer on that team. And you look at a guy like Rajon Rondo. Look at what happened to Rondo after his run to the finals, and he's much older. You know, people have called Dennis Schroeder the German Rondo. Rondo goes ahead and knocks down shots at a clip that he's never knocked him down before. And, you know, he essentially was was pretty much never heard from last year, but got a two-year, $16 million contract. You know, and at his age and for what he's bringing to your team, that's a lot. It was definitely an overpay. And so I think for Schroeder, that's what he was betting. So when you apply that to the Celtics season, I'm, what I'm hoping for is that he's understanding that same concept, even if his stats aren't, you know, the 18 and eight, but if he's affecting the game in a way that the Celtics end up in the second round, the Celtics end up in the Eastern conference finals, the Celtics have something crazy that I don't foresee happening where they end up in the finals. That's actually what's going to be best for his bank account, not the 18 and eight, the team success in the role that he plays within this team and helping to elevate two young, two young stars and Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum. That's going to be where the payday is, not in the individual stats. But, you know, that's something that we have to wait and see. We're, we're obviously purely speculating at that point. But I feel like that was part of his gamble with the Lakers. And I think he's seen that that's been true with other players of, you know, of his status in the past. So I'm betting that that's what he's going to look to do with this team as well, is help to elevate them to a level beyond where the Celtics are expected to be. And then that's where his payday will come versus the individual. And that's what I hope. That's where I think that's what elevates both the Celtics and Schroeder for the entire season. And I'm completely all in on that version of Dennis Schroeder. I am all in. But again, we're not going to know until about 30 games into the season. Once he's once he's comfortable in his surroundings, once he's comfortable with the teammates, you know, you go through a bad spell because every team's gonna have a spell of losses. Once and I want you can never really tell how good a team is until you see how they get through that first set of struggles in a season. That's always been kind of one of my first telltale signs is it's great when thing, when you're winning and things are going fantastic. When things go bad, how do you rebound? And the Celtics teams during the Isaiah Thomas years and previously like with the Big Three era and then a bit before then when I was first watching and stuff. Well, first watching, I should say, like the Rick Pitino years. Oh, the good old Rick Pitino years. <laughs> yeah, well, it was always a struggle. Um, <laughs> it's always about how you bounce back. It's, it's about that shows you more about how a team is constructed from a locker room and chemistry standpoint than how they are when they're winning. And I think that's when you're really going to see how Schroeder has bought into things when he's the team are down 10. His role is to make that right read, but he chooses to make that shot or mm-hmm. take that shot. And that's when you'll start to see whether he's bought in and he's trying to build the right way or He's played his role for so long, but now the real him's coming out and he's focused on that payday. And we're going to have to see. We don't know this guy. He could be one of the nicest guys on earth. Uh, He could also (laughs) not be one of the nicest guys Uh, on earth. He's he's apparently a skateboarder. I saw that on his Instagram, right? Right around the time that we signed him. He's like, he's doing some, some kickflips. So got a, got a new skateboard guy on the team. I mean, I love. I can sit there and watch Rodney Mullen videos till the cows come home. I'm, you know, I went and bought Tony Hawk's one and two remastered the other week. But I will say this: I've met some really great people that skateboard. I've met some really bad people that skateboard. <laughs> so you know, it's, skateboarding doesn't automatically make you this cool, awesome person. It just means you can do some awesome stuff on a board. 
we know Schroeder's here. Let's segue. This is a bad segue. It's not a good segue, but we're going to segue anyway. Can't all be perfect, man. Nah, sometimes you just kind of have to just hard stop and turn, you know? Um, Schroeder's come in. There's one too many people on the roster at this point. I feel like a lot of the guard rotation is kind of clogged. You've got Chris Dunn is probably the odd man out looking in right now. But then you've got Jabari Parker, who's the non-guaranteed contract. Where do you go from here? Like, so if we look from the guard rotation, what are your, let's start here. Who are your starting point guard and shooting guard? And who are your reserve one and two in that position? Yeah, it, it's a great question. I will say, you know, for me, I typically like to concern myself. I, I think who's starting gets a little overrated. I really think it's more about who's finishing the game. That's really where I find the, the most importance, unless you're putting yourself in, a, in some type of hole with the starting lineup, which at a certain point last year, that double big lineup was doing, and it became a, an issue that we needed to resolve. So when it comes to the backcourt, I, I think you could go a couple different ways. My gut tells me Marcus Smart's going to be one of the starters, and that's really just based on the way it feels as though, you know, we've seen the rumored extension. Uh, it feels the way that Brad Stevens and Ime Udoka have been talking about Marcus Smart, that, you know, as long as he's on this team, they're treating him almost in a, in a captain-type role, even if he doesn't have the C on his jersey. So I feel like for that reason, Marcus Smart is going to end up as a starter. Then I look at Peyton Pritchard. I think Peyton Pritchard is the easiest call to make here as a guy that's that's going to be in that, you know, backup role coming off the bench that's pretty clear to me and you know he's having a great summer league right now and he looks like a guy that probably doesn't belong in summer league so you know I think Peyton Frazier is pretty clearly going to be in one of those backup roles then you look to Josh Richardson and you look to to Dennis Schroeder in my opinion I'm counting Jalen Brown as a wing in this scenario not necessarily as as a member of the backcourt so between Josh Richardson and Dennis Schroeder I think it's going to be I think you could kind of go either way you could put Richardson out there and have that extra wing handling, uh, excuse me, extra ball handling wing. Or you could have Schroeder out there as another scorer on the floor. I think I would probably lean towards Richardson being in the starting lineup and maybe having Schroeder on the bench. So that way, typically, and then again, this is all subject to change because I don't really know Ime Udoka's coaching style. But thinking back to last year, typically Brad would have one of the Jays come out early. And so I would want to put in Schroeder at that point to balance out the scoring attack from a different perspective. But, you know, that, that's a little bit subject to change at this point. So for now, I'd probably lean towards Marcus and Richardson being the starting backcourt with Schroeder and Pritchard coming off the bench. Where are you leaning right now, Adam? So I'm pretty much at the exact same point with you. I've, I've looked at it from a standpoint of maybe it's Marcus and Neesmith or Marcus. That's and... one I forgot. Yeah, Neesmith, a bit of a wild card here. You're right, though. Yeah. It could be Marcus and Romeo. It could be, and you have Romeo at the point and Marcus at the two. Uh, I think if you're going to try and find minutes for these younger guys, then one of them needs to be thrust into the starting lineup. And like you said, it's not about who starts, it's about who finishes. Just because you're starting the game doesn't mean you're getting starting minutes. It's just a way to get you the playing time you need to continue developing. So uh, one lineup I've messed around with in my head is a Marcus Smart, Aaron Neesmith, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Al Horford starting five with a Dennis Schroeder, Josh Richardson. And then you can throw in like your Romeo Langford, your Jabari Parker and your Robert Williams. Um, you can mess around with it like that or you can have it, you know, you want Rob Williams starting, you can make that change there. But I just think that there's so many, like for, for the point guard position and the guard position in general, 
I think Pritchard playing at the one or the two off the bench makes a bunch of sense because you get that spacing. And if he's playing alongside Schroeder, that's going to be like super important. And then you can have Josh Richardson or Neesmith. You just, for Schroeder, I just think you need a lot of open spacing and you don't want to take mm-hmm. that away from Tatum and Brown, which is why, to me, he has to be the bench guy. Yeah, I can see that. And honestly, right now, I'm kicking myself that I didn't think of Aaron Neesmith for some reason. I don't I don't know what was going on. I, mean, I literally just spent I just spent uh, time before this watch rewatching his 33-point game in Summer League and completely slipped my mind as I started talking. You see him as a forward, dude? You just see him as a wing? That's the only difference? That's yeah. That's really it. Is you know, I think of him when when I when I look at the the guard setup, I am placing Romeo and Neesmith more in that backup wing role to the Jays and Richardson. That's probably the the one of the better parts about Richardson is he can kind of ebb and flow between the two. And to a degree, I think Neesmith can as well. And Romeo with his ball handling might be able to do so as well. So there is certainly some some versatility there. But you know, I, I think we are pretty aligned in the sense that I think it's really that guard spot where Ime is going to have to do a balancing act a little bit yeah. of what's needed, spacing, what's needed defensively. You know, because when you look at, you know, the Jays, they're certainly going to be out there the majority of the time. And then when you look to the front court, I almost, you know, at this point without, you know, things being equal, Al Horford and Rob Williams might as well be a 50-50 coin flip for as far as starting time, who's the starter, who's the backup. But playing time in my mind, feels like it should be roughly equal between the two of them. They just bring different elements of spacing, Horford being able to be more of a pick-and-pop guy, Rob being more of a vertical threat, but they're both going to be guys that are pivotal in your offense as far as keeping the ball moving and then protecting the rim on defense. So I think both of them can be interchangeable as far as the moment based on the context of the team you're playing, but that their time splits are not going to be that big of a deal. And then, of course, if you need an extra big, we have Cantor, and we'll see if Fernando stick around so they can squeeze them in when needed but majority will be between rob and al yeah i mean it has to be because they're your two like most talented big men anyway i've got to say i loved how fernando looked in that first game well second game but his first game uh super athletic i liked how he run that one fake dho on the wing with um yeah. well, he was in like a delay right he run that fake dho and then just completely rolled himself to the hoop finished with that nice uh I think it was a finger roll out. He was he put some sauce. He had, he had a couple finish. finishes at the rim, and he had that little layoff to Romeo for the massive dunk. You know, and that's so. This is where summer league for me, I think, gets sometimes confusing as trying to figure out what's real and what's not real. Now, I have not done a deep dive on Bruno Fernando. I don't know his game super well. I know that he went from a rookie with some promising playing time, and it certainly decreased as the Hawks got more talent last year and didn't see the floor very often. But when I see Bruno Fernando handling the ball the way he did and being able to lumber down the lane and make plays off of that, whether that's finishing at the rim or dropping it off for that, you know, uh, for that nice dunk to your boy Romeo, that's where I kind of look at it a little bit like, I'm I'm not sure how, how real it is that I see Bruno being able to pull that off in a regular season NBA game. And so I was impressed for sure. Definitely was something that stood out to me as well. But I, I just don't know how much I buy that versus a guy like Aaron Neesmith in summer league. I'm not trying to hijack this into a complete summer league conversation at this point. But where I see him shooting off movement, that's something that I can envision in my mind. Oh, that makes sense. That's actually something I wish I saw more of 
last year and that he's now working on in summer league. That seems like I can wrap my head around translating the Bruno Fernando piece. Not quite sure, but it's definitely interesting to see at the very least. I mean, you've just touched on a point I made on Monday's podcast where I was very disappointed in the first game that we saw some of these guys that are expected to actually play minutes this season playing in roles that they're not going to be fulfilling during the season. So when you're set, when you'll talk about Aaron Neesmith taking movement shots, that's a role he's going to be asked to do this year. Attack, play off movement, attack it off the off curls, off pin downs, um, in quick offensive movements like coming straight down and stepping into a free. And then if somebody tries to run you off the line, drive the ball and finish around the rim or take that midi. And when in game two, where Neesmith actually played that role, played a role that you'd expect to see him play in a general NBA game, he excelled. And then you can start getting excited because, as you say, it's completely translatable to the role he's going to be asked to play for the next 82 games, mm-hmm. like health permitting. So when you see Romeo running as a ball handler and running pick and roll, hitting pocket passes, it's the same thing because that's the role that you envision him being asked to play for the Celtics as either a point forward or a ball handling guard on the, on the second unit or a, a third unit guy wherever he falls into that rotation. Then you see someone like Bruno Fernando, who just, we, as you say, we don't know his game, but we, don't, we also don't know where he projects to be on the depth chart or in that rotation. So him showing a bit of everything is completely fine. That's what Summer League's for. Yeah. For these guys that are super low-end rotation guys or just trying to make their way onto an NBA team or a two-way contract, Show everything you can do for your first, second, and third. Well, for your first, second, and third year guys that are at least projecting to have roles, then I want to see what you can do within that role. And you need to develop within that specific area, which is why seeing Pritchard operating pick and rolls and actually orchestrating an offense, attacking on all three levels, facilitating off dribble drive penetration. That's exactly what you want him to do in the season. So when he's excelling there, you understand that the defense isn't the same because it's somebody, but you also understand that he understands that role and he's going to be impactful there. So it, I think with somebody, you kind of have to go into it with different expectations for different tiers of players yeah. and then make sure that you don't kind of get let those tiers bleed into each other too much because that's when you get your, over, your overreaction. I do not overreact to Carson Edwards draining 10 million points. Oh, in three preach, preach. You know, I am... But, uh, yeah, I mean, th- so that's that's kind of the point where I was, was going to take this is looking at it with with some of these other tiers of of players on the Celtics roster is you know Carson Edwards uh, honestly I he, there's nothing he's going to be able to show me unless he's doing something wildly different like penetrating and creating opportunities for others that's going to be like oh my god this is something new him draining threes. I, that's fine. I know he can do that in summer league. I know that if you go put Carson Edwards in any lifetime fitness in America and go put a camera on him, people are going to say, how come no one's given C boogie any love? I get it. That dude, that dude can hoop. He can score. I need to see it on an NBA court in a regular season game. And especially if that's all the same attributes that he's showing, it's not going to do anything for me. And that might be a little jaded because I was really high on Carson Edwards after his rookie year. and I've gotten burned since then. But, you know, I, I, won't, I won't let that, you know, throw me off too much. And then that gets me to a guy like Grant Williams who's not at Summer League. And you talk about, you know, working on stuff that translates to your role. This is why I wasn't really, you know, some parts of, of Celtic Twitter were upset that Grant Williams wasn't there, quote unquote, working on his game. I think the stuff that he's been working on, he's not going to get done in Summer League personally. And we see this at times when he comes in at the end of a game and, you know, he's supposed to be the the – 
best player or second or third best player, all three theoretically. And he's not just being that super duper versatile role guy, which is actually where his bread and butter is going to be in the NBA. And I think if he's in a summer league setting, that's not what's really going to be worked on. He's going to be, you know, thrust into roles that, that he's not going to be doing in the regular season. So therefore I just don't think summer league is as valuable for someone like, like Grant, who I do think still has value, even though I know most Celtics fans are not very high on him right now, which I understand after his sophomore season, but I don't think summer league was where Grant's going to be able to get too much better. Cause it's just going to be a very different role than what he's going to be asked to do. Whereas the guys like Peyton Pritchard, can you run the offense? Can you show us that Aaron Neesmith? Can you be the best player on the floor with this level of competition? Can you hit those shots with movement? Can you hit them off curls? Can you create the step back shot that he hit the other night? I don't think I saw that all of last season. If you add that component of, of a threat to this offense, that's going to make a world of difference. And the way that this team is set up right now for a guy like Aaron Neesmith, there's going to be a lot of weight on his shoulders to have a reliable and consistent threat from the outside. Because the shooting on this team, the depth of it is is not great, if we're just being brutally honest. And you have a lot of guys that can shoot but aren't really true threats. So if Aaron Neesmith can become that, that's massive. And that's something you can see here in Summer League. So, you know, I, I think the way you put it with different players within different tiers of Summer League is how you kind of have to look at it is the way that you can, you know, compartmentalize what you're watching. I, I think it's spot on. Do you know what I like when talking about Grant Williams' role and not fitting into summer league? I feel like Grant Williams is a guy that excels on a polished offense and a polished defense. He's the guy you plug in when everyone else knows where they're meant to be on the floor. You do that in summer league, he's going to look 10 times worse than everybody else there because he he needs you to be on a very similar level to him in terms of defense on a string, in terms of if he sets a pin down, you need to recognize that that pin down's coming before it's actually there in the defense just to get away from the pin. So Grant Williams' game just doesn't translate to summer league. Just like, you know, this guy's Carson Edwards game does not translate to the NBA. It just happens sometimes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm completely fine with Grant Williams going away, doing his own training, working on whatever he needs to work on. For me, I think it'll be um, body positioning and positional defense, learning how to cut off angles rather than rely on foot speed. Just take away angle, driving angles and driving lanes without relying on getting in front of guys and turning everything into a foot race. Understanding that if you're going to be on the three-point line, maybe you want to start lifting or lifting off that corner onto the wing and then shooting back down to drop into the shooting position just to keep defenses kind of moving. Uh, I'm completely fine with that. I don't think there's much that he could have took away from this because the game's just too scrappy for his, yeah, his skill set. Yeah, it's just not going to work. Now, Peyton Pritchard, on the other hand, he could play blindfolded with one arm tied behind his back <laughs> and he'd still find a way to improve his game. You know what I mean? He's just that type of player. He's yeah. a scrappy type of player. I think I saw somewhere earlier that, and I don't have it pulled up in front of me now, he was leading the NBA Summer League in points per possession. And it was a crazy number. It was like 1.38 or something like that. But he was uh, he was leading the, and that includes Jalen Green, includes Cade Cunningham, includes all these other, you know, top picks from this year and last year. And, you know, Peyton Pritchard, you know, I, we, even, we even touched on it briefly earlier. He probably doesn't need to be at Summer League. You know, he, he's a guy that's probably better than, then you know he's a, he's already a solid role player, but I think giving him more experience in case of those moments where this crowded backcourt calls upon Peyton Pritchard to step up a level, this is a great experience for him. I also think that he just his ridiculous range, dude. 
Like yeah. just getting him comfortable pulling up from the logos, pulling up, come, like literally come off a high up screen at the logo and just pull up from like four or five feet out of the three point line. Being consistent there just opens up so much for everybody else. You want to continually build that confidence, get those reps in. And I don't think Neesmith is the type of guy that would turn down an opportunity to play developmental basketball because yeah. that's just not in his nature. From all the reports I've read, um, Jay King of The Athletic had an amazing one a few months back where he kind of really deep dove into who Peyton Pritchard was as a person. Um, from all of that stuff, it, it's just he would never say no to that opportunity to continue developing. Yeah, but man, as, as we're looking at this this roster construction and kind of mi- mixing it with Summer League, you know, Peyton Pritchard all, already having proven that he's a legit threat from the three-point line. And then you're, as you're talking about expanding that range, him and Aaron Neesmith are going to play some pretty crucial roles on this team when it comes to that shooting aspect. You know, everyone else outside of the Jays, you know, Al Horford can shoot, solid shooter. Marcus Smart, he's fine. Josh Richardson, okay. Dennis Schroeder, not great. Kind of, they're all, they all kind of live in this mid-30s category. And so, you know, if you can get Peyton Pritchard to repeat on a higher volume that around 40 percentile that he was hitting and Aaron Neesmith you know pegged as the best shooter in the draft last year went I don't know if it was seven of nine or seven of ten the other night you get that type of production from those guys you create that spacing and that gravity that you have to pay attention to these guys that can come out and kill you on a night that you're so focused on the stars of this team it really shifts what this team can be if they are those guys consistently. So I think the two of them are going to have to be ready to get a lot of reps because they are going to be those true floor spacers coming off the bench for this team. No, I completely agree. I just think that there's, not, as you said, there's a clear drop-off in scoring ability, like shooting ability in talent-wise. Once you go Jalen, Jason, or Jason, Jalen, sorry, <laughs> then there's then there's a drop-off. Then you've got Peyton, Neesmith. Then there's another drop-off, and now you've got slashes. You know, yeah. and everyone else is relying on being able to score off the dribble, to be play finishers rather than playmakers or offensive creators. They're all very much play finishers waiting to catch a pass within their own rhythm and then take that shot. Obviously, I'd class Dennis Schroeder as more of an offensive creator in terms of his own offense. Um, so he'll be looking to make his own shots off the dribble or get to the rim. But having someone like Neesmith that's just going to step up and be your Duncan Robinson or your Kyle Korver type guy, but with more athleticism, more defensive upside, and an ability to deal with floaters, with mid-range pull-ups, with being able to finish at the rim, that's going to be huge. And then if you can get Romeo, Peyton Pritchard said this after game one, if you can get Romeo to start hitting threes consistently, that opens up a world of possibilities for him due to the athleticism he's got. Uh, He's just, Romeo plays very nonchalant so it looks like he's not interested in the game right yeah did, did I, you did you listen to the NBC broadcast the other day by any chance no i didn't get access to it i had to listen to the nba one okay and the reason i bring this up is scal was kind of hammering down on this on this point as well in saying that part of, of romeo's issue is that he doesn't care now i don't know if i fully agree with that but i only bring it up based on on your point of he appears nonchalant and I think there's plenty of players over the years that just because they may appear nonchalant doesn't necessarily mean they don't care or aren't trying but I was just curious I just wanted to bring that up because I was re I was watching the replay and Scal was hammering home that point uh about Romeo and essentially his dislike of Romeo but you know I I don't know that that's true 
but to the nonchalantness, I think that may come off. Maybe not just to scale, but maybe to others as well. So I've never done this before on anything to do with basketball. I've never, ever, ever compared basketball to soccer. And I probably will never, ever do it again. If I do, it's going to be such a rarity. But growing up in England, you see the people moaning about soccer players all the time. And probably about 10 years ago, there was a player named Dimitar Berbatov that played for Manchester United. And he played for Tottenham Hotspur, then went over to Manchester United. Ridiculously talented guy. Played without a care in the world. Nonchalant as you like. Never ran. Never looked like he was sprinting. Never looked like he was running. Just seemed to walk everywhere. But he was a multi-time champion. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. It was just his play style was very relaxed. He lulled you into a false sense of security before kind of striking and doing whatever he needed to do. And like it's not like I watched a bunch of the games, but obviously it's on the news it's in the papers you see everywhere you go like soccer here is like football in texas you can't escape it even if you're not paying attention to it and um whenever whenever i watch romeo play it throws me back to that era and seeing all of that because it's just a very similar thing sometimes people are just their their demeanor and the way they approach the game is in such a relaxed manner because they're comfortable in their ability that it looks like they're not trying when really they're trying real real hard. It's just their body language and approach to the game is a relaxed approach. And that can be grating for some people, especially in a, a team like Boston that's predicated on like grit and hustle, hustle your heart out and yeah. really stick your neck on the line for every loose ball. To see a guy with a nonchalant attitude, uh, that, that can trigger some people. So I can completely understand, but I do think that some of that criticism is a little bit unfounded. Yeah, a big thing with Boston fans, not just of the Celtics, but of all Boston sports, a lot of PhDs in body science. You know what I'm saying? Everybody's got their read on the different, on, on the different, um, you know, reads of the, of the, uh, now what's the word I'm looking for? Not body science. What was the word I was looking for, Adam, that you just said? Body language. Body language. Messed up my own joke. Damn. <laughs> hey, when that happens. Can't you, don't you just hate when you, when you have it there, it's on the tip of the tongue and you're, you're cueing it up and then you, and then you just mess it up. Happens to me like four times a podcast. (laughs) I've learned to just live with it at this point. Yeah. A lot of big PhDs in body language is what I was going for. But no, this is something that happens all the time in Boston. And, you know, I don't necessarily think it's fair. I'm certainly guilty of it at points too, where you're trying to make inferences on what you're seeing. I mean, you are seeing at least part of it as the final product. You're not certainly seeing behind the scenes where you have no idea mentally what's going on in an athlete's head but this is something that has come up many times just like with a lot of the topics we've we've mentioned today we're gonna have to see how it plays out you know we're we're still several weeks away from the season so we don't really have too much to go off at this point but at least something to note and i think that's a really good place to leave it because there's a lot that we're going to be able to talk about over the next few weeks it's going to be a tough few weeks once summer league's over because then everything does really go quiet for a hot minute until the season starts again. Yeah, um, so if you guys have topics, if you guys have something crazy you want us to do, maybe outside the box, you got a draft you want, you got something that, that we can put together, definitely hit us up in the DMs. Let us know what you're thinking and, uh, you know, may, maybe your idea will make it to air. Hopefully, hopefully. Send me them DMs, send Will them DMs, tweet at us. Send us Facebook messages. I don't know. However you want to do it, just send us some form of communication. We'll see what we can do. Guys, you've been listening to the Celtics pod. Before we go, I'm starting a newsletter called Vitamin C, so make sure to check that out. As usual, you can follow me at Adam Taylor NBA, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, anywhere that there's social media. I'm generally kind of lurking around the Celtics regions. 
You can find Mr. Will at find me at at Wilbon13 W-I-L-L-B-O-N 1-3 and go make sure you sign up for that vitamin C y'all yeah vitamin not vitamin sorry the English kind of pronunciation I, I, I'm like your I'm like your translator here <laughs> yeah dude I'm telling you dude like aluminium and aluminum it's, uh, <laughs> it, it happens a few times a day that I get caught out with the Englishness anyway as usual if you've been listening on our Apple device please leave that five star written review anything nice always goes a long way it makes me smile gives me a good day and to be real honest, real serious for a moment, it helps to show out massively. It helps us show on explore pages on Apple devices, helps us rank on podcast charts. You're not only helping us out, but you're helping out the whole Celtics blog kind of podcast network, podcast feed itself. You're supporting uh, the brand of Celtics blog. And if you don't have an Apple device, that's fine. Water cooler chat. If you're in the Uber, if you've got a waiter or a waitress, you're at the cinema, you see a guy in a Celtics jersey or a lady in a Celtics hat. Hey, why have you listened to this podcast? If not, you should check it out. These guys are awesome. Just wherever it comes up in conversation, keep it organic. We'd appreciate that a bunch. Well, I'll let you lead us out with the good boys, man. All right. Everybody have a good weekend and we'll catch y'all next time. Peace. Ain't disrespecting you haters. I ain't sweating your opinion. Y'all been testing my patience. Never did it for a check. I've been impressed with the famous. Just rather be creative than stressing my wages. Ageless every time I lay a verse down. One play at a time. Keep it moving like a first down. And at the end of the day, I can say that I made this. MJ never made it to the majors. Still, he chased greatness. Expected that he might fail. And I might too. I might never get to pop champagne. Celebrating with the crew. This ain't everything I am. It's something that I do.